Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, you'll find the notes for this morning's message in the bullets, and you'll find the text on the back of the notes. And we continue through John's prologue, picking up the pace a little bit this morning, getting through um, six verses. There's a typo, it's not 16 to 13, it's 6 to 13, Um, six or seven verses. But I want to read, as we've done for the last few weeks, um, the first 18 verses. This prologue really sets up the gospel. After verse 18, we enter into narrative. And so John is setting up, framing his gospel. I'd like to read John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness The darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Lord God, we would know your Son. We would recognize and receive the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word, the life and light of men. We recognize that your light shines even in the darkness of this world today through your word. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be those who believe, we would be those who receive, we would be those born of you. So, Lord, I pray that you would birth what only you can birth, beget what only you can beget. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we'll be looking at verses 6 through 13. After that, there's one other section in the prologue, which will take two or three weeks to get through, and then we will enter into the narrative. John has introduced to us the Lord Jesus Christ using some striking and unfamiliar titles. We'll get to the normal, regular, familiar titles for Jesus shortly, but he begins with one unique to himself— calling the Lord Jesus Christ the Word. He calls him that again in the book of Revelation. And then he says that he is also the life and the light. And last week we considered the the conflict of the, the light shining into the darkness and the darkness not overcoming it. The Lord Jesus is triumphant. Whatever we make of the events of the gospel, it is not the triumph of the darkness. The darkness shines in the light. The darkness has not overcome it. Now, it may appear in verse 6 that John is switching topics. All of a sudden, we're talking about John the Baptist. Twice, in fact, John the Baptist shows up in the prologue. Perhaps you noticed it here in verses 6 through 8, and then again in verse 15. 
Some have even suggested that this is some later edition. Why is this here? Well, because John has started his gospel with the very beginning. The other gospels start with the birth announcements or the genealogy. John starts with in the beginning. But make no mistake, John the Baptist is the human predecessor of the ministry of Jesus. All the gospels give us that. So after establishing Christ in the beginning with God and his activity in creation, He then moves to where all the other Gospels move to, John the Baptist. And so we're going to look at this in three points. The witness to the light, John is still using the metaphor of light, the title of Jesus as light, the rejection of the light, and the reception of the light. And so we see in verses 6, 7, and 8, the witness to the light, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Another marker that John thinks he's writing to people who know the story is he doesn't give John any other title, what's called disambiguation. John will disambiguate some. The other gospels call him John the Baptist. Here's just John. Presumably, by the time John is writing, John the Baptist is so well known, you can just say John. And there's no uncertainty about whom he's speaking about. Interestingly, whereas the other gospels emphasize John's ministry of baptism, here in John's gospel, you could almost call him John the witness. Do you get the emphasis here? There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Then look at verse 19. When the narrative begins after the prologue, what is John doing? He's not baptizing. He is witnessing. This is the testimony of John when the Jews and the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem sent, sorry, when when the Jews and priests and Levites from Jerusalem sent to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to them, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So what John is seen doing in John's gospel, John we know as the Baptist, is actually witnessing, confessing, testifying, so we're going to look at these verses in three points. First, the identity. How does, how does John, the gospel writer, identify and frame John the Baptist? Well, the first point here is that he's God's sent agent. God's sent agent. There was a man sent from God. So this authorizes John. This makes it clear he took his ministry not on his own authority or his own initiative, but he was sent by God. Jesus, likewise, will refer to himself as being sent. John will speak of Jesus that way in John 3, 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. This also links back that this entire mission of salvation is the father's plan. He's the one sending. He sends the son. Ahead of the son, he sent John. And so even as John is going to spend most of his time reigning back overestimations of John the Baptist. It appears as though perhaps at this time of writing, there was even a cult of John. He spends so much time emphasizing John isn't the Christ. He isn't the light. You you saw that here. You saw that in what we just read. Jump over to chapter 3. We get included this discussion. We're just trying to figure out what, what accounts for this. Well, we know in Acts 19 that... Paul encountered disciples of John who hadn't heard of the Holy Spirit, that perhaps there were still sects of people who had come out receiving John's baptism and never progressed beyond that, and they just thought it was all about John. So we get in John chapter 3, verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. See, now he's baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because water is plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, 
He was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So some of John's disciples are expressing chagrin, dismay, confusion over the fact that Jesus is becoming greater in popularity, in importance, and in ministry than John. Perhaps there are still people in the writing of John's gospel who felt the same way. Perhaps that explains. And so John tells us that the Baptist rejoiced at this. Look at verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John has repeatedly emphasized that John the Baptist himself confessed, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the prophet. I'm not the one. I'm here to magnify him. It's a good reminder for ourselves to how we are to view ourselves. This is the greatest man born of women, Jesus says elsewhere in another gospel. And he is a witness. He isn't the thing itself. You and I aren't the big deal. But we can testify to and be witnesses to the one who is king of kings and lord of lords. God sent agent point to not the light itself. Not the light itself. It's interesting. Turn over to John chapter 5. There is a sense in which you can speak of John as a light. Jesus, in fact, does. John 5, 33 to 35, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but these things, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp. So in one sense, you can call John a light. But the key is he's not the light. Perhaps a better metaphor might be a mirror that reflects light. I think that's a helpful picture. You and I can be lights reflecting the glory of God, reflecting his greatness. John the Baptist was a light insofar as he reflected and then truly shone God's light on those he spoke to. But make no mistake, he is not the light. We're to See in just a few minutes who that is, if it's not already clear. So the identity, God's sent, commissioned agent, a legitimate prophet, legitimate sent one, one with a task and a mission, but not the light itself. What was that mission? Well, we've seen it, and it's been hopefully abundantly clear. He's a witness to testify to the light. Before the Father sent his Son in the flesh, before God sent the Lord Jesus Christ, He sent a herald to prepare the way, to return the hearts of the sons and daughters to the parents, to make straight the path of the Lord. John's purpose was to testify, to witness, to point to Jesus. That's exactly what we see him do in chapter 1. Twice, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You don't point to and testify any more clearly than that. And what was the purpose behind his function? It's the same purpose John has in writing his gospel. It's ultimately God's purpose in sending his son that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. In that sense, then John the Baptist, John the gospel writer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and God the Father have one purpose. You'll remember, John tells us why he wrote his gospel. And in John 20, verses 30 through 31, he gives us his purpose statement. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe. John's purpose in writing is the same purpose in the sending of John the Baptist. To create, to elicit, to bring forth faith in, not John, but in the one he witnessed and pointed to in the Lord Jesus Christ that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's, that's the summary of John the Baptist. We're going to see him act. We're going to see him carry out this purpose. Who is he? He's a commissioned, sent agent of God. He's not the light. What's his purpose? To be a witness, to testify, to point to, to reflect. With what goal? That others might come to faith. I I submit to you, this is a great way of understanding our own identity. This is how the church understood its identity in the first century. Do you know what the word for witness is in Greek? Marturo. 
And so the early church spoke of the faithful martyrs, those who witnessed and confessed and did not deny, just like John the Baptist, even under threat of death. That's what they understood their purpose. Why is God left you to witness, to testify to? And so the name martyr was given to those who confessed and did not deny that Jesus is the Christ, even under terrible torture. Because that was what they understood their purpose is. We're not the big thing. We're not the source of light. We can reflect it. We should reflect it. But John understood that. The greatest men born of woman understood, I'm not the big deal. I am pointing to, confessing to, testifying to, reflecting towards the true light. That's the witness to the light. Next, we see the true light. The true light, verse 9, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The rejection of the light. And even though John will move to the doctrine of incarnation, clearly in verse 14, the word became flesh. It's in view here. The true light was coming into the world. So let's first deal with that, that notion of true light. I'm going to suggest to you what true light means is the genuine and the ultimate light. Psalm 119 makes it clear that God's word itself gives light. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Believers can be called light. In Matthew 5.14, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. But none of us are the true light. Again, this gets back to reflective glory. Jesus is the true light, the ultimate, the genuine light, the source of all light. John's already told us in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And we're talking about spiritual light. Even as much as Jesus is the source of ocular light in Revelation 21, where there is no sun or moon because the light of the Lamb is what the nations walk by. Here, it's going to become clear the light we're talking about is spiritual light, that we might understand spiritual truth, the true, the genuine light. This is why Jesus can say in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Connecting again, light and life, just as John did in him in verse 4. And then we get that next phrase, who gives light to everyone? Now, there's some debate over what's being meant here. I, I, I would suggest to you that it doesn't mean everyone, as in like every single last human being. There, there are some who suggest that. I think rather it's better understood who enlightens men without distinction. Everyone as opposed to not just Jews. This is a particular light that Jesus gives coming into the world. It's connected with the incarnation. And so presumably people who have not been exposed to the incarnation lack this light. I think that's in part why John says the light shines, not shown, but shines in verse 5. Because insofar as the record in God's word of the light, Jesus Christ is testified to, it's still shining. It's still shining into the world. But in, in one sense, we're doing missions precisely because not all men have received this light. This is how this word is used in uh, Hebrews 10, 32. Speaking of their conversion, the author of Hebrews writes, recall the former days after you were enlightened. They, they, what's it mean to be enlightened? They came to the knowledge of the truth. They came to salvation. I, I think that's what John means here. The true light who gives light to everyone, or enlightens everyone, or offers it freely to all, and that's the idea, was coming into the world. This is a huge move. He's the creator. He's with God at his side. He is God. He makes all things. And now, the, the one who is God, and yet distinct from God, the one who is the life and light of men, enters into creation. Now, he'll elaborate more fully on this in verse 14, and God willing, we'll, we'll see that next week. But here, the creator is entering into his creation. That's, that's jaw-dropping. One of the problems we deal with, 
um, in philosophy, I'm getting ready to teach it, I am actually teaching a class in philosophy of the homeschool, is the issue of transcendence and imminence. Um, if you think of Greek or Norse gods, they're imminent, they're close, they're relatable. But in one sense, they really are nothing more than Marvel superheroes. They're, they're normal people turned up to 11, right? And they've got human foibles and weaknesses, The other extreme is the notion of transcendence, a God who is other, who's not like creation. But the problem with a transcendent God is how then can we know and relate to a transcendent God? If God is not like us, if he is separate from us, if he's not part of the creation, then how can we hope to know him? And so philosophers have wrestled with the issue is is ultimate prime reality, transcendent and unknowable or imminent and knowable. And here we see that the God who is transcendent has become imminent Present, knowable, precisely because he has entered into creation. Now that's the point here. No one, verse 18, has ever seen God because he's transcendent, because he's outside of creation. He tells Moses, you couldn't see me and live. And yet by virtue of the incarnation, the one who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. So we have an absolute transcendent God who is holy, holy, holy. That's the fundamental notion of holiness, otherness. And yet we have a God we can approach and know through the Lord Jesus Christ. The creator has come to his creation. What reception did the creator receive? He was in the world. The world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. These are some of the most tragic words in Scripture. Notice how he's setting up what you would expect. We we talked about this last week. If anyone has rights or claim, it's the author of something. He made the world. He entered into the world. What an act of humility. What an act of loving kindness and self-revealing. And he came to his own. And the world he made did not know him. The blank here is recognize him. I, I think that's what's in view. Um, they, they did not recognize him for who he was. If you, if you look at verse 126, John the Baptist confesses to formally not knowing Jesus. And I think that's the idea here. In 126, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one. You do, oh, that's you do not know. Let me also look at 31, where he says he didn't know. Um, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, Jesus and John are cousins. And it's, some people wrestle again with this saying, well, how did John not know Jesus? I think the fundamental idea is knowing him for who he was. I, I don't think John's saying, I have no idea who he was. But rather, it was not till the Spirit revealed to me, this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. This is the one who outranks me, for he was before me, that I truly know him. So Jesus came to his own, and there are people on this planet who met Jesus and who interacted with him and knew him in that sense. But the tragedy is they didn't come to know him for who he was. He came to his own. The world he made did not recognize him. And that's just tragic. He's their maker. He's the author of their life, the source of their light and life. And and John is in one sense just summarizing his entire gospel. What are we going to see in this gospel? We're going to see Jesus come to his own. And creation's his own, but more specifically we see his own people. Okay, maybe all of creation may not recognize him. Surely the Jews would. The ones who entered into a covenant with God at Sinai. The ones who received the oracles of God. The ones who had been taught of God and led in the wilderness. The one whom God has sent prophets and kings. Surely they would recognize their maker, their creator, their God. And by and large, no, they didn't. He came to his own people. and His own people did not receive him. That's your blank, receive him. I want to pause here for a moment and talk about what that means to not receive Jesus. I think, it's, I think it's worth emphasizing because it's not as though the Jews of Jesus' day were not willing to receive him in some senses. 
Uh, let me step back even further. The, the Greek word here, as the English word, has a sort of passive and active meaning. If you think of the postman or the FedEx delivery driver, he comes up to your door and he knocks on the door and you receive the package. That's pretty passive. On the more active side of the spectrum of receive, think of a wedding reception. Or someone might ask you, what type of reception do they give you? I think that's clearly what's in view. How did his own people receive him? And the reason I want to stress this is because his own people received him in some very credible ways that are clearly insufficient. Turn to chapter 3. Turn to chapter 3, verse 2. Nicodemus is willing to posit that Jesus is a teacher come from God. That's good, right? Jesus is fully prepared to receive Jesus as a teacher come from God. The man... This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know, not just Nicodemus, but the Pharisees behind him. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus and the Pharisees, apparently, at this point, are prepared to receive Jesus, to take him as a teacher from God who does miracles. Turn to chapter 6. Large crowd, large multitude. That Jesus feeds miraculously. They're willing to receive him as the prophet. Not a prophet, the prophet. Referencing the the prophecy in Deuteronomy. That Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up from among you one of your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This is the prophet. They're asking John the Baptist, not are you a prophet, are you the prophet? Well here, in in John chapter 6, they're willing to, to receive him as the prophet. Look at 614. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They'll receive him as the prophet. They even, if you read the next verse, want to make him king. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So when you consider his own people didn't receive him, you got to fit that alongside of, but apparently they will, were prepared to receive him as a teacher from God who did miracles, as the prophet promised in Deuteronomy, and they were prepared to make him king. In what sense then did they not receive him? Well, we see if we keep reading in six, because most of these people wanting to make him king in six are going to depart and leave. What offended them? What, what did they stumble over? Go to 41, 6, 41. So the Jews grumbled about him, these people who wanted to make him king, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I have come down from heaven? It's his claim to deity that tripped them up. Remember, why did John write? So that you might believe, but two specific things that you might believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. John isn't just writing that we believe general things about Jesus. John wrote his gospel that we might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of God. What are these people who want to make him king and call him the prophet tripping over? It's the Son of God portion of that. Who are you to say you came down from heaven? We know your parents Stop putting on airs, Jesus, they're saying. And consequently, look at verse 65. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. These people who said, this is the prophet. Let's make him king. So I I stress this going back to chapter 1. Because receiving Jesus properly may be a little more involved, maybe a little more precise, than we might think. I don't think it's just, here's the package, take it. I, I think there's a specific reception we're to give. That, that's why I'm stressing this point. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The other reason I'm, I'm stressing this point is because I think probably the predominant phrase Christians use to describe their salvation, and, and if not the predominant, a predominant, is to say, when I accepted the Lord... Now, nowhere in the Bible, in any translation I'm aware of, does it tell you or command you or ask you or does people speak of accepting the Lord? My guess is this passage is where that comes from. Because if you take receive, if you move to the passive notion, like the FedEx 
delivery. Well, then in that sense, receive and accept are virtually synonymous, right? I received the package, I accepted the package. And my guess is that we've gravitated, the Western church, we, to that passive notion of receiving, where here's this gift, do you want it? Yeah, I'll take it, sure. And I think in this passage, and in John's gospel, it's the active aspect of receive, like give him the right reception. And so I don't think it's a terribly healthy development that, well, it's never a good development when we leave biblical terms for non-biblical terms, but if what you mean by I accepted Jesus is what John's gospel means by receiving him, believing in him, amen, all is good, but I think it suggests that in many cases, a much more passive, a much more, yeah, okay, I'll sign for it, here's the package, thank you, is in view in, in many people's minds when they speak of this. His own people did not receive him, and we need to read through the gospel and pay attention to what they did do, because whatever it is they did do, they didn't receive him, not rightly. So they received him as teacher from God, the prophet, the king. What would they not receive him as? Messiah and the son of God. Turn, turn to John 8. The other thing they tripped up on is Jesus as deliverer from sin. They, they view him as a deliverer from Rome. I think the reason they wanted to make him king in John 6 is because he had just fed them. We know that an army marches on his belly. Here is someone who can feed the entire army every day. After the raising of Lazarus, here's somebody who, if he gets struck down in battle, can raise you up. Let's make him king. What they don't want from Jesus is deliverance from sin. And again, in another striking passage in John, John is going to put this up. John is the gospel of belief, but he's also the gospel of clearly defining belief. We we want to have clear definitions for our terms. Look at verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, right? So you're with me? We're talking to people who've believed in Jesus. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Oh, they don't like that. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The sun remains forever. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. They don't like the implication that they're slaves to sin. They don't want that type of deliverer. They don't want that type of Messiah. Jump down a little further. Setting up where we're going in a minute. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works of Abraham. You don't look like Abraham's kids to me. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works of your father. You look like you're part of a different family. You don't look like you're part of the Abraham family. They said to him, we're not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me, just like God sent John the Baptist. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, he said to the Jews who had believed in him. So yeah, I think John leaves us clues and markers to say, whoa, whoa, make sure you understand my terms. Because there's one sense in which people who Jesus says are sons of the devil trying to kill him. Well, they believed in him in a sense. And so we want to get our terms biblically informed and accurate. They didn't receive him. There are a lot of ways they were prepared to receive him. But again and again, it's the notion of their own need for deliverance from corruption, their own need of forgiveness from sin, their own need to recognize their filth and their guilt. That's why John the Baptist came with a baptism of repentance. Come out symbolically making clear, I need cleansing head to toe. And that will prepare you to receive the Messiah God is sending. And they tripped up over his claim to deity. That's, that's ultimately what drives Jesus to the cross. In John 19, 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. So notice those two things John focuses on. There can be other things that trip people up about Jesus, but for the Jews of Jesus' day, it's the claims to deity and the claims that you're filthy people needing 
forgiveness and cleansing and freeing from sin that they stumbled over. They were willing to receive him on so many other terms, but not those. Which brings us then to some of the most hopeful verses. Verse 12 and 13. Verse 12 and 13. By and large, in the main, he came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That's not the end of the story. Praise God. But to all who did receive him. And John, I think, has us in view just as well as anyone else. Because that light is still shining. And he's going to name those other people three different ways. They're to, notice in the text, who did receive him, who believed in his name, verse 13, who were born, and then jump all the way down to the verse, of God. He's naming the same group of people three ways. The group of people who received him, is also the group who believed in his name, is also the group who were born of God, and that's the group he gave the right to become children of God to. So let's work through this condition first, but to all who received him. So I'm arguing that receiving Jesus is more than accepting a package, but it's giving him the reception he deserves, receiving him rightly for who he is. It is is so common today to to offer Jesus... um, for lesser goods. What I mean is the central thing Jesus says, he is God and he is the deliverer from sin. Now, does he bring meaning to your life? Yes, he does. Does he bring emotional wholeness? Yes, he does. But there are people who present Jesus as that that's the primary thing. Is your life empty? Lack purpose? Jesus will give you purpose. That's true. But that's not what people stumble over. And if that's all you believe about Jesus, you're no better off than Nicodemus and the Jews in John's gospel. John wrote that we might come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who would come and die for his people's sins, who would take on his own body the stripes by which we are healed, that the wrath of God would fall upon rightly. We need to receive him as the one I need because I'm so disgustingly sinful that the Son of God needs to die for me that I might be acceptable to God. That that's who he is. He is the satisfaction for my sin. And he is God. He is Lord. He is my God. He is my Lord. Which is to say, who receive him as both Messiah and as God. Then he names them a second time. Who believed in his name. That's a John expression. Believe in his name. I don't believe any other writer than John uses that particular phrase. And again, the name is identity. This is getting back to who someone is. The name of Jesus isn't a magic name. In fact, Jesus is likely not any sounds that would come out of anyone's mouth in the first century. If they're speaking Hebrew, it would probably be Yeshua. If they're speaking Greek, it would be Iesus. So the phonemes that we get Jesus from are not special phonemes. It's the person whom they name that matters. This is why in cults who believe in Jesus but have a different Jesus, this isn't alchemy or magic. And so what matters is believing in Jesus for who he is. And John wants to make it clear, you, you need to believe he's the Christ. You need to believe he's the son of God. And if your belief in Jesus doesn't go that far, it's not good enough. Just like the Jews who believed in him in John 8. Just like the Jews who believed in Jesus in John 2. Turn to John 2. Another hint that John wants us to chew on these things. The exact expression we see here, who believed in his name, is used just, what is it, just 63 verses later. John 2, verse 23 Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many, exact phrase, believed in his name. And if you've read the prologue, I think you'd expect something like, and Jesus, on his part, gave them the right of the power to become children of God. That's not what we read. When they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus, on his own part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man. So it it matters that we understand these phrases and terms rightly. 
John has set up these things, I think, to make us scratch our heads and go, whoa, 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 John, I thought you said if you believed in his name, you were given the right to become children of God. Well, if you believe in his name like I mean for you to believe in his name, if, if you mean what I mean, John says. And so that's why. I'm trying to show you the warrant. I'm not trying to make this harder than it needs to be. John has things coming in his gospel that are meant to make us ask these questions. Well, what, well, what do you mean? There's a sense in which you can believe in his name and Jesus doesn't respond positively? Yes. We'll see that in John 3 with Nicodemus. So that's why I would stress these things. John's purpose in writing, my purpose in preaching this morning is that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you would believe the right things about him, that your understanding of who he is would correspond with who he is, and that then that you would receive him, that I would receive him as he is, and not with some makeover that makes me more comfortable with him. Jesus, the psychotherapist. Jesus, the purpose giver. There's truth to that. He is Lord of Lord and King of Kings, and he is the sacrifice that deals with our sin. Next, we get to the gift. The gift. He gave the right to become children of God. If, if you are one of those who can be named by these three titles, to receive him, who believed in his name, who were born of God, if that defines you, this is the tremendous gift God has given you. He's given you the right to become children of God. And again, I want to pause and say, what, what does that mean? The word translated right here can also mean authority or power. And I want to suggest to you, first off, that we're dealing with this in functional categories. Turn over to John 5. That when we're dealing with God as Father and Jesus as Son, Jesus uses this different word. He's, he's the Son of God. You and I can be his sons and daughters, but Jesus will never mingle the two. So he'll say later in John, I go to my God and your God. He will not say our God. Because his relationship to the Father as Son is very different from your and my relationship with him as sons and daughters. Oh, there's some commonality, but there is some great distinction. But in Jesus' thought, when he's pressed to elaborate on what does it mean that you're calling God your father? Because that's, that's the issue in John 5, right? Um, verse 17, Jesus answered, my father's working until now and I'm working. I'm, I'm claiming divine prerogative. Whatever God does, I can do. He works on the Sabbath, I work on the Sabbath. And the Jews don't misunderstand. They get it. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Oh, yeah, they get it. And so what Jesus does now is he, he wants to define his categories. He wants to explain what he's saying, what he's not saying. And what's clear is the sonship category, his primary explanation is a functional category. I'm not saying that that is the, the full, exhaustive explanation. But what I mean is we have the expression, like father, like son. In the Gospels, he's the carpenter's son, and later he's the carpenter. And I think that is the primary idea Jesus uses to explain that. So we see here, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. What's, what's the picture? Like a child following his father around the office or his workplace or the farm, and he observes and he watches and he sees what his father does and he imitates and does it in response. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. The father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Greater works than these will he show you, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son of Son gives life to whom he will. And Jesus is pressing this. Because in one sense, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. Why? They shall be called sons of God. Because to the degree that you make peace, you look like you're of the peacemaking family. And who is the patriarch and chief of the peacemaking family? But the peacemaking God. That's the rationale. That's the rationale we saw in John 8. Abraham is our father. Yeah, I don't think he is. Why? You're not doing the things he did. You're doing something that looks like you're part of a different family. There's another family whose patriarch is a liar from the beginning and a murderer, and you're lying about me, and you're preparing to kill me. I know whose family you're in. It's a functional category, right? So now back to John 1. He gave those who received him, who believed in his name, the right or the authority to become children of God. What's, what's the gift then? 
the gift, I believe, is the ability to imitate the Father. The ability to act like your dad. The ability to bear a family resemblance. The ability to act like his children. We're to find out that to those he's given that gift, he's already birthed them. He's already begat them. The defining mark of the children of God is they look like their father. They look like their father. This is the rationale Paul uses in Ephesians 5.8. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Conduct yourself as children of light. John, the gospel writer, will pick this theme up again. In first, t- turn over to 1 John. I think the last passage I'll ask you to turn to. I make no promises, but I think it's the last passage. Born of God is, again, a Johain expression. I don't think anyone else in the New Testament uses this language, but John uses it seven times in 1 John. So if we want to try to figure out what's he talking about being born of God, the right to become children of God, what does it mean? And again, I'm suggesting to you, it's primarily saying something like, he has given you the power, the authority, the right to act like the family you belong to. I think that's what he means. The, the emphasis in the verb being to become. Not to be, but to become. 1 John, chapter 2, verse 29. First place I could find. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure of this, that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. What's the mark of God's children? They practice righteousness. 1 John 3, 9. No one... Born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. You get the implications of what John means when he talks about being God's child, being born of him. It's it's an economic, functional category. Turn over to 4.7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then turn to five one. The only not clearly functional category. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. But then look down at um, five four. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. They persevere to the end. They confess. They testify and do not deny what the first century would call martyrs. And then finally in in 518, twice, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him. The evil one does not touch him. I, I do that sidebar to try to convince you that when John says to those who believe in him, to those who receive him, to those who are born of him. He gives the right, the power, the authority to become children of God. He means he's giving you the power to obey. He's giving you the power to be free from sin and be a slave to righteousness. He's giving you the authority, the right, the privilege, the ability to start acting like your father who you name. I I think that's what he's saying. He gives the ability to imitate the Father. And then he wants to make it clear the cause. So the condition to all who received him, the gift, he gave the right to become children of God. The cause, he says it negatively three ways and then positively one way. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And I think that all three of those negative statements are different ways of speaking with the same idea. Literally, it's bloods, plural, possibly linking back to ancestry, like the Jews would claim we're, we're children of Abraham, or possibly the, the notion that both the mother and the father contribute to the child being born, multiple bloods. And the statement, the will of the flesh, the fleshly desire, there's a, it doesn't, I don't need to spell this out too clearly, there's a physical desire that when satisfied frequently yields children. He's saying it's not of that, nor the will of man, literally the will of a father, a husband. 
not the parent's determination. You know, there are some of us, I know people who decide we, we want to get pregnant. We made a decision. We want to have a baby. John's saying that is not the basis of this birth whatsoever. If not human, this is, of course, setting up the discussion in John 3. You must be born again. Well, he seeds that here. Those who receive Jesus, those who believe in his name, those who are given this great gift, have been born, not of natural generation, but they've been born again, but of God. They've been born of God. What that means is, if you sitting here today, these statements can be true of you. You are one who has received Jesus rightly as he is. And I, I bl- beg you, plead with you to do so. John wrote his gospel for this purpose. John the Baptist came that all might believe. Jesus is praying in John 17 that the world might believe through their testimony. That if that names you, then you're also one who receives him rightly. And that also means you're going to find out, and we're going to talk more about this in chapter 3. That you've been begotten and birthed and born of God. And that birth brings with it privileges and responsibilities. Because all those who have that birth, understand this is a package deal. I believe in Jesus, praise God. That means I've received him rightly. That means I've been born of God. And it also means I've been given the power to become and act like I'm part of that family. It all goes together as a package. It all goes together as a package. Those who believe are those who receive are those who are begotten of or born of God. And those are the ones that are given the power and the right and the authority to act like the family whose name they bear. We're getting to the heart of why John wrote here. The vast majority of the world rejected the light. Even as they were willing to make him king. Even as they were willing to say, this is the prophet. Even as they were willing to say, you're a teacher come from God. They tripped over, this is the sacrifice for my sins. Because I need a sacrifice. And this is my God and my Lord. They tripped over that. God gives us this great gift to those who receive him rightly. And he's given us the ability to call out to him, Abba. Father, I'm going to call the worship team up for our closing song. It's my prayer that you would, that I would not receive a Jesus of our own imagining, a Jesus that we're comfortable with, safe Jesus, but the Son of God, the Son of Man, sacrifice and Savior for our sins, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the one to whom all glory is due. Please stand as we sing our closing song.